You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy. Hey people, how are you doing? Started. We are live. My name is Matt Phillips. For those of you who don't recognise my dulcet tones, I'm creative runchatlive.com. And this is episode 160 of the Sports Therapy Association podcast. Or if tonight you're listening to Run Chat Live podcast and it's episode 65, what the hell is this guy talking about? Well, because my very special guest this evening has got such an important message for not just soft tissue therapists, but also runners and people who work with runners. And I thought what I'll do is I've done this a couple of times before. I'm going to upload tonight's recording, not just to Sports Therapy Association podcast, but also to Run Chat Live podcast because they haven't heard me for a while. So, yeah, I'll be saying talking to both people but then again if you're a sports therapist or a soft tissue therapist sports massage therapist sports rehabilitator and you're listening to one chat live then there's loads in both they do they do kind of cross paths an awful lot so check them both out if you're not if you're only familiar with one so um if you listen to the podcast and you're thinking what's well, recorded live then all you need to do is go along to the sports therapy association youtube channel normally on a tuesday at eight o'clock but tonight mainly because i've just come back from Ibiza, and you can't see my tan but believe me i've got a little bit of one then um yeah it's on a wednesday and people have already come into the live lounge. And if you do come and join us live, then I can bring your message and question or comment up onto the screen, like Penny from Soma Sports Massage Therapy has put a lovely yellow smiley face to start off the evening. So there we go. Hey, Penny, how are you doing? Good to see you here. Nikki Mansfield. Let's see what well, Nikki's always got something very wise to say. Evening, peeps. What a fantastic guest we have tonight. There you go. I told you. Jacko's awesome. Get ready to have your mind and lungs blown. Wow. Okay, well, there we go. Let's uh, set the bench quite high there uh, Nikki for Jacko <laughs> uh, Penny comes back and says what a great subject tonight I was really looking forward to it all week thank you Penny it's really cool um, and so on and people are coming in we've got newly sports therapy Gary Newbold great way to put your face but there your presence is there and that's something else you can do guys just getting a little bit kind of business model now is it's a great way to interact network to get to know each other to get your logo up onto the screen. There's about three, 3,500 downloads, which isn't a lot for a podcast, not quite at Joe Rogan level yet, but pretty much everyone who listens to this is going to be a soft tissue therapist. Otherwise, I'm not quite sure why I listen to it. Um, then we've got a few physios and chiros and osteos and that sort of thing as well. So it's, it's a good target audience. So if you um, do want to come and hang out with a few of those fellow-minded individuals, um, then like I say, normally a Tuesday, on the Sports Therapy Association podcast. And that goes out to you on Chat Live podcast listeners as well. Anyway, right, enough rambling from me. Like I say, so my guest tonight, uh, very excited. To anyone who's a fan of rugby, he'll need very little introduction. It's David Jacko Jackson, who made 316 appearances for Nottingham RFC. I'm going to spout this out now like I've actually watched rugby, just to, everyone knows I'm, I'm kind of a runner. And I did play rugby once because I was six foot five at 13 years old. And I got forced somewhere in the middle of a scrum. And, then really disappointed Mr. Pope when I voluntarily went down to the second 15 because I found it all a little bit too competitive. And uh, but, but anyway, yes, so yeah, David Jacko Jackson, uh, Nottingham RFC, scored up 102 tries I've got from good authority across a career of 13 years, but in 2013 was forced to retire due to TBI, which is traumatic brain injury. Um, and in one of the things which he found, we're going to talk about everything from that moment to now, um, is breath work breath training um, and how the connection between how you breathe and the brain and, and everything to do with performance, to do with functioning, stress, anxiety, 
across the board is what we're going to be talking about uh, with Jacko this evening. As always, if you are in the live lounge and you want to ask a question, then just jump in now. Tell Jacko that he's welcome just to shut me up and say, oh, Becky's got a good question. Hey, Becky Cowell, you're bound to have a good question. I just saw you then come in there. So, yeah, do take advantage of being in the live lounge uh, tonight. I'm very happy to stop talking and just have your questions come up. Right then, there you go. Far too long as always, but it gives me great pleasure now to bring up David Jacko Jackson. You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy. Hey, Jacko. Hey, here we are. Here we are. That. Very slick. The technology, I'm so impressed. I think Joe Rogan, I think Joe Rogan would be impressed. And Joe Rogan also started with. 3,000 downloads once upon a time. So, uh, oh, you're so empowering, you are. But then I know that because I've listened to your podcast. But yeah, it's true. Put your mind to it, you can do anything. Um, would I want to reach the dizzy heights of Joe Rogan? Oh, I don't know. You should be on there soon anyway. He goes, he, he loves breathing techniques and things, but it'd be nice if you had an evidence based kind of breathing technique person to talk to. Um, because some of the people, anyway, I'm not gonna go down there. Well, yeah, he's so. been, he's obviously he's been emailing me, that's been ignoring him at the moment. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's only a matter of time, mate. But thank you very much for giving us your time. Um, I've spent a fantastic week catching up and listening to your podcast and getting to know all about you. So it feels like I know you already, but I appreciate your time. Um, and I suppose to start off, really, for people who don't know you, um, yeah, we've got to bring it up, haven't we? Because it all starts, doesn't it, with 2013 was the year when your life essentially changed. So essentially, yeah, could you tell us a little uh, bit about that for people aren't familiar? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'd, I'd had my first concussion in when I was 16 years old. So that'd be, what, 1998. Uh, but, you know, just I wouldn't have played. I would have played my first professional game of rugby when I was 18. Um, and I had a series of concussions throughout my career that, unaware of at the time, there was this cumulative build-up effect that was happening. Um, and looking back, it's quite obvious now. It was taking less to knock me out, and the symptoms I was experiencing were worse. Um, and it was taking me longer to get over them. Um, I got to the point where in yeah, August 2013, pre-season, I was about to go into my 13th season. I was 31 years old. So, you know, I was very lucky. I'd had a, I'd had a long career, as you mentioned, with some of those stats. Um, this guy's now, and there was a, a younger lad, Finley Barnum, retired, like, just after me. And, you know, he'd only just started his career. Um, so I felt I was very fortunate that I'd had a, um, I'd had a, a decent career. I'd just signed a new two-year contract. Um, so I was hoping to play for at least two more seasons. Um but my brain had got to the point where um, it wasn't recovering and it was affected much more longer term. So I can't remember the, the last time I'd got um, concussed or knocked out. And you don't have to be knocked out to be concussed, but more of a severity rather than just feeling a bit dizzy. I don't know when the last one before that was. I'd have to go back and check my like stats. But it wasn't like I'd it wasn't like just a few weeks or a few months before. It was I mean, we'd, we'd had the off season. It was August. So we'd 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 had time off. So I wouldn't have played a game until the previous April. Um, but two of us in training, um, playing touch in the warm-up on the same team, just trying to, both went to catch the same ball and we just banged into each other. Um, you know, one of my friends said, like at the time, it was, it was about to start laughing. It was like, it was funny, just two of you. Um, but I, when I hit the hit the ground, I started having a fit, a seizure. Um, you know, the closest guys put me in the recovery position, made sure I didn't 
swallowed my tongue and and got the physio over and then you know got to the hospital and and the rest I guess is is history but um yeah it was a completely innocuous challenge of of nothingness it wasn't like a big collision um you know and it wasn't until months later that I finally had like I had a CT scan originally which just shows some bruising on the brain it doesn't really give you any uh, insight into what's going on but an MRI scan around the Christmas time um and retired in the January um in 2014 um which you know we don't need to necessarily go into the detail of this but it was actually at that point quite a relief even though I didn't know what I was going to go and do with my life and career I was actually scared about going back onto the field um and one of the complicated things with head injuries is um unless you're having a very detailed MRI scan which you won't get unless you're part of like a research project or something um the, the, you, you, unless it's like a you know unless you've had a complete hemorrhage really you know something really really clearly bad but you'd know because you wouldn't be at all thinking about trying to get back on a rugby third if you had a big bleed i had a small bleed it, it was fine it didn't need to be operated on or anything like that um so those of us that are not having such a bad say brain hemorrhage or bleed that means you know you have to have an operation if you're underneath that you're in this category where you're sort of told like well everything looks okay and you're like at the start you're like well I'm definitely not okay and then after a while you're then questioning yourself like am I okay and I don't still don't think I am you know I was at a point where it took a year to get over my symptoms at that point um and then the breathing stuff came in um a few more years down the line I was interested actually. What, what, I remember hearing that it was like a year before you could run without getting headaches yeah. or something. So that was obviously one of the symptoms. What other, what other things were you suffering from? Um, well, in the short term, um, or the short term, so sort of weeks and months, it was like fatigue, sensitivity to light, depression, um, couldn't concentrate. Like I couldn't do, I couldn't even read a book. I couldn't do anything. Mm. Um, memory, and I've still lost memory from that period. Um, yeah, he, he basically a zombie, uh, sleeping mm-hmm. just all the time, um, and not really much use for uh, for anything else. But only when you come out of that do you realise how. When you're in it, you know that like it's you're not right, but you don't know how bad you are. Um, I mean, I've, I've said this before in interviews that like in the the day immediately after, um, I was in co-op. Other supermarkets are available, but I was. Um, just happened to be a co-op and I was, I didn't really eat yogurt a lot, but for some reason I fancied eating a yogurt. And I was looking up at the, um, I should have gone to somewhere like Aldi where there isn't really much of a choice. It's like, do you want yogurt? Well, there it is. Whereas in a normal, so it was just like, what, what different, all the different flavours and all the different choice. And that choice as a cognitive demand on my brain made me break down in tears in the middle of co-op. And I'm going like, part of me is like going, what is going on? Like, what is the matter with me? Like, this isn't normal. But also part of you is just like fully in that and not, it's a bit weird. Like you're not, you're like fully in that. You're not realizing how weird it is. And you, yeah, it's, it's, uh, the brain was, the brain was, the brain was trying to recover. It was, it was challenging. It couldn't do something, um, as simple as that. And it's trying to recover and hence a lot of the sleep. Um, what I know now around how um, the nervous system, heart rate variability, cerebral blood flow, the effect it has on the uh, the brainstem where the respiratory centres are, 
what we know now is that the advice I was given was like, okay, so let's just not be, don't stimulate the brain, don't do anything, sit in a dark room and just don't do anything, don't look at anything. And you're like, well, how, even if I hadn't had a brain injury, that's going to leave me with some severe mental health problems regardless. Um, but you add into the fact that you're like, okay, um, I'm retiring from the sport that I love and is all I've really mm. sort of known. Um, and your identity is wrapped up in that. So you've got all that sort of stuff as well as like, how are you going to, you know, your contract's just been ripped up. It's Christmas. How am I going to pay my mortgage and have, there's all that stuff on top as well. Um, but we know now that actually there is something that you can do, even when you can't do anything, you can start working on your breathing, which will work on your nervous system, which will also work on the cerebral blood flow and the oxygen spice of the brain to get your nervous system and the oxygen delivery to the brain to a place where you will start to be able to recover better. Um, I'm, uh, I'm just one uh, data point, um, but I've had a scan now 10 years later that shows my, my, my brain uh, scan is completely clear. There was a scar on my brain before from the, the seizure and the small bleed that I had. That's clear. Um, and I know that, Okay, I try to live a, a healthy lifestyle. And I'm interested in um, various different things that would be beneficial for brain health. But the one thing that I've really delved into, because when I came across it and I did the assessments on my own breathing and realized, well, I didn't know I was terrible at breathing. Like, this is a bit of a weird thing. And there's this link between breathing and brain injuries and brain health. Like, okay, that's something I need to, that for me was a very clear and obvious and, and, and simple one to go for rather than normally the ego gets in the way when you're terrible at something you're like oh, but it was like yeah my ego didn't like being bad at breathing because you think gosh breathing that's like <laughs> fundamental of life and if i can't do that well then that probably is a problem and and the link to the the brain injury so yeah i sort of um as a many as many people do once you have a little peek in andorra's box and if there's good so a good reason for you to be invested in that. It's um, it's difficult to turn around and, and walk back out and, and leave it alone because once you've once you've experienced the the positive effects it's going to have on every part of your of your body, physically and mentally, um, then yeah, then you can't not sort of you can't unhear what you're. Uh, I often say that to someone. It's almost like an apology after I do a first session with a client. It's like right, sort of an apology of like you've heard it now, so like you can't not think about it. And not that we then get you know we don't want to be obsessed about their breathing, but once you've heard and once you've also understood, and then once you've you know physically we, we do some stuff so they can feel some differences. It's like okay, this is being aware and working on your breathing is something that you will have that now for the rest of your life um and that's that's powerful it's life-changing so so from what you said there is definitely still a void of information and a lack of care for people who have had some kind of um collision um whether it's being diagnosed properly or whether they're just aware of it and maybe they weren't looked after properly there is information now that I think one of the things we mentioned i mentioned to you off air is a soft tissue therapist even, I hate saying even because it sounds like they're at the bottom of the pile, but like something that sounds as simple as a sports massage, well, let's face it, somebody who's down and having maybe potential symptoms from concussion is gonna go, I just wanna get away from, I wanna go somewhere dark for now and just feel good. 
bang, massage. So if a massage therapist has got this information, just going, wow, I listened to this podcast the other day, and you know what? Have you thought of breathing exercises yet? This is something which could change that person's life because the chances are they haven't been told about it by the consultant yeah. or the person they went to see at the hospital. Yeah, and you actually, um, one of my worst brain injuries, um, about five years before I had um, my last one, the one that ended my career, won't even be on my record because what happened as well as having uh, two bad concussions in the same game was the second one fractured my uh, cheek and eye, I had a triple fracture of my cheek and eye socket and had to have that pulled back out and it was supposed to be plated but didn't need it in the end. So I got taken to hospital and operated on and dealt with because they could see this big hole in my Mm. face. Um, The the brain injury and the double concussion, which is really dangerous, wasn't even, um, yeah, just still, it will will never, that will never be on my... um, on my record and it's because when we have a physical uh, it's still physical but when we have like a more superficial um injury that we can clearly see and treat like clearly i'm glad that my that was treated as well but um i remember getting back to training i wasn't it's really interesting that the various different uh, friend of mine always talks about this is like nothing there are no coincidences like you know that sort of classic phrase of like everything happens for a reason it sounds a bit like whatever but I two things in that scenario. One, if I'd had a plate put in, which I went into the operation to have done, if I'd had a, a plate put in, I wouldn't have been able to have my MRI scan five years later because you can't have metal in the in the scanner. Um, so the fact that when the surgeon pulled it out um, and it just stuck in place, and he said to me afterwards, "Oh, I didn't need to put a plate in." Um, it, and he, he sort of he sort of gestured that he was like smacking my face to check that it was stable. And he was like, "Yeah, it was stable." So we just it's fine. It doesn't need, it doesn't need a plate. I was a bit disappointed at the time because I was looking forward to going through the scanners at the airport and sending them off and being like, yeah, it's good. I've got my in my face. Um, and uh, I, having had that injury, going back into, I wasn't allowed to do any contact for six weeks because of that injury, which actually gave me six weeks of non, no contact, which was going to be then good for my head. I remember doing a fitness session. So it was allowed to do, you know, fitness training. I'm doing a fitness session. Now, at that point, I was literally like the fittest guy on our team. And I could not keep up with, like, the least fit. I was struggling big time. I remember sitting down with the, with the fitness coach and the captain. I was like, I feel horrific. I was like, I don't know what is wrong with me. And just sort of put it down to, well, I'd had a general anesthetic, like, the week before for that operation. Like, just uh, put it down to that. I wasn't even at the time thinking about the the two concussions that I'd received um and look I'm still I guess someone would say I'm still speculating now that it was to do with that but um I'd be uh, I'm as close to 100% certain that's um that's what it was I was still suffering with some some post-concussion symptoms um but but again luckily that I didn't go I wasn't cleared because of needing the operation on my face I'm a cheek and my jaw I wasn't cleared to to um, to play so yeah. Okay, so yeah, so still definitely definitely avoid. I should say now we were gonna have people might have seen on the advert, especially STA members, Keith Burnett, um STA regional rep was gonna mm-hmm. be with us here tonight. I was very excited because Keith is England University's rugby league sports therapist and he's a doctor of student in neck injury management rugby players. He's actually got a book coming out soon. He's gonna be the guest next week, but unfortunately, last minute thing, he couldn't come tonight. But yeah, he's it, 
devoting his life into specifically neck injury management in rugby players because he says again it's avoiding information um people aren't yeah. being trained from pitch side to that hospital in, in what to do what to look for so yeah um, he'll be talking about that next week so anyway keith don't worry about not making tonight um we'll, we'll look forward to seeing you next week there's a good question so, from becky um, oh, okay. I told you a good one. Um, bring so it bring, up, bring it, it back out. to basics. Yeah, do the basics well. Solidify the foundation. The rest will follow. The problem we have, or a potential problem we have, is people don't know what the basics are and are also confused about what the basics are. So an example being like someone saying, uh, "Take a deep breath," and when they take a deep breath, they go, <sighs> and actually, what that is is a big sigh and it's an upper chest vertical movement it's a mouth breath and it's actually it's, it's getting close to what we would call like a co2 dump where you're like getting rid of carbon dioxide out of the body which when it's elevated really high can be beneficial for a, a, a sports person like a rugby player that i work with um but generally speaking like you can uh, normal levels of, of co2 within the body around 40 milligrams of mercury pressure. So don't worry about the unit, it's just 40, I think of it's thought. You can offload in one big breath, something like seven to 14 milligrams of mercury pressure. So you can drop that 40, like you can take a third off it in one breath. And that's not a good thing. Carbon dioxide is, when we're talking about like what it would be beneficial related to, um, uh, for, for working with someone as a therapist, carbon dioxide is a vasodilator. And it's the catalyst allows oxygen to be released from red blood cells, from the hemoglobin red blood cells. If you are offloading CO2, if I'm telling someone to take some deep breaths whilst they're having some massage, and they start basically over-breathing, hyperventilating, like breathing more than our metabolic demands, that is, that is what over-breathing is, like defined as. It'd be very easy for me to over-breathe by taking some big breaths when I'm lying down, because my metabolic demand when you're lying down having a massage is very small. And... I might be telling them to do something and their misconception of that and me not being aware about what makes up this simple thing of breathing. It is simple. And I'll get to some very simple things that you can do and implement. But simplicity can sometimes get overlooked. Um, and so if I was taking some deeper, bigger breaths, I was turning into like these sighs, that essentially I'm getting rid of carbon dioxide. Rather than vasodilating the blood vessels and letting um, uh, letting oxygen to be released into the tissues, I'm actually getting some vasoconstriction. This is well researched, studied, documented in, in humans and in, and in animals. Like how you breathe affects the levels of CO2 within the blood, which affects the levels of vasoconstriction or vasodilation that we have. We want to be getting people to breathe calmly, quietly, breathe less essentially, to try and one, calm the nervous system and to improve our physiology in terms of the gas exchanges. And one very simple thing that we can try to get people um, to do is nasal breathe. Um, the nose provides 50% more resistance to the mouth. The resistance gives the diaphragm something to pull against. So we're, we're not necessarily going to breathe really beautifully diaphragmatically just because we switched to nasal breathing. But we've got a better chance. Uh, that diaphragmatic breath coming from lower down is going to take a little bit longer, so it's going to be a bit slower. Um, the simplest sort of cues and things and, and tips that I would give to people is if they can try to breathe through their nose and try to breathe quietly, 
you're ticking the you're ticking a couple of boxes using the right holes in your face rather than that big one and when it's quiet it's slow and it's gentle when it's slow and it's gentle you're potentially ticking off like the the two key things we need to do in order to like calm our breathing down when we're talking about breathing we need to understand that it's about the volume of air that you are breathing your inhale, your exhale, that can all change and blah, 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 blah. But there isn't that many things you can do. You can inhale, you can exhale, you can hold your breath. That's, that's sort of it. That's where we're at. But how you do those things ultimately influences the amount of air that you're breathing. Your inhale dictates your exhale. I take a big inhale. I'm going to take a big exhale. You don't take a big inhale and then a small exhale. The two match each other. The... Um, the volume of air that you're then breathing is very simply determined by the f- number of breaths you're taking, so how fast you're breathing or how slow you're breathing your respiratory rate, and the size of each of those breaths, the volume of air of each breath multiplied by the respiratory rate. So tidal volume is the volume of air. That's the sort of technical term for it. But basically the size of breaths and the speed of them determine the volume of air that you breathe in. The volume of air that you're breathing in and out will dictate how those blood gases are being exchanged, how well that CO2 is helping the the body circulate blood and deliver oxygen to tissues. We don't want to be breathing more. It's more work for the body to do. There's a, there's a, that's one thing that I always find this, this bit funny, that you have to, you're breathing to get oxygen in and also get rid of CO2 that the body is making and getting that, it needs to be in balance, right? But we focus a lot or think a lot about like we need to get, we're breathing because we need to get oxygen in. There's only just one part of it. You know, 75% of the oxygen you breathe in with one breath, you breathe out with the next. So you've actually got loads of, uh, of oxygen in the body. You, you're, the next breath we all just take as we're sat here watching this is not at all because oxygen has changed and lowered in your blood. You have 25 billion or trillion, 25 trillion, I think, um, red blood cells saturated with oxygen. It's, You've got loads. There's no problem. The reason you're going to take a next breath is because your body wants to get rid of some of the CO2 that you're constantly making at, you know, at a given rate. Um, so uh, the, the bit that I find funny is you're breathing to get oxygen in, but you need oxygen to create the energy for the breathing muscles to create that inhalation to happen, like that chi- the, the classic sort of chicken egg thing. Um, which some people will probably just think is a bit stupid, but I find it fascinating that there is, even with this thing of breathing, because at, at, at low at low intensity stuff or just lying on a bed or sat listening to this, it's sort of you don't really necessarily think about it. The You don't feel like you're putting a lot of energy into breathing, but you still are. And being efficient with it would mean you do less of it. Slow them down, smaller breaths with each one. That's actually better for your circulation, better for your uh, oxygen delivery to all of your tissues, better for cerebral blood flow. And we're talking about that for, for brain injuries. Um, but it's also carbon dioxide is um, good for vagal tone, which those involved like, in terms of understanding the nervous system, like that's going to be really important for the relaxation response that you're going to want to try and get with you uh, when you're working on someone in terms of uh, manual therapy. Um, the slower breathing is also going to be calming for the nervous system too. Um, so these are all really, yes, it's the basics of breathing. But if anyone's anything like me, like 
We just don't get taught or understand any of that stuff. We just would say, okay, um, let's uh, take some take some deep breaths, diaphragmatic, and people then probably do those big sighs. And actually, we're not helping the matter at all. And I think I'll shut up in one second. The other thing is that diaphragmatic breathing, people don't know what it is. They don't know how to do it. Um, they don't know what it feels like. I was exactly that. Literally uh, working with some international rugby players at the moment, working towards getting prepared for the World Cup. In the first session, we're, I'm asking them about diaphragmatic breathing, expecting them not to know because I was exactly the same. And this is my experience with a lot of people in and they, these are these are guys playing at the highest level, doing a sport that requires them to breathe a lot. It's very stressful, physically, emotionally, everything. And they don't know if they they don't know if they're doing it. They don't know how to do it. And then even um, not uncommon at all. And had this recently where you know top top guy and. It, it took us two sessions to get him like, okay, yeah, I actually think I can feel my diaphragm moving now. Just wasn't. I mean, it probably still was, but in terms of like actually feeling well connected, understanding how the rib cage moves and diaphragm moves. Um, so that's just my little, it's a great point from Becky. It's my little rant on like, I totally agree, but the problem that we have is breathing being so basic or so simple or so automatic because it is part of that autonomic um, system it, ha it is automatic or can be automatic it gets easily uh, misunderstood or, or, or miscommunicated yeah, I, think that's I think I mean what I would recommend people listening is because you've broken it down wonderfully there but you, you it's really worth because you've got a free introduction. I think it's seven modules, I think, which is on the website. Foundation, yeah, Foundations of Breathing. Foundations, course, which yeah. is so important to look at. And they're wonderful. They're like eight to ten minutes each. There's seven of them. And it takes you through the physiology um, and then also the, um, the psychological part of things. And, and it gives you loads of little tips and exercises you can do. So I just want to jump in here now because we're already like halfway through just to Absolutely. let people know who are listening. Because there's a lot of. I don't know, misinformation or just people it's breathing is a little bit like nutrition isn't it it's easy to watch a youtube video and get something which is well-meaning but it just makes it or they go off on a little bit of a tangent but what i love about your foundation is because you're a learned man you are you're a engineer wasn't it university uh yeah i got a, a first and the first wasn't it yeah i know <laughs> not many people That's know that i don't get a chance to, i don't get a chance to talk about that no it's well learned. did i say and it was a thing, master's yeah yeah, 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 I think it did. Yeah, it was master's, oh, no, it did. I'll make sure that goes to the show. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> it should find you. But one of the great things, and, and obviously it's my bias as well, is it's is you love the research. You're not afraid to get stuck into a paper, but you're also really aware. And we chatted a bit like this off air that there's a problem today where people think that evidence informed or evidence based is just do what the research says. But if we just did that, we wouldn't be doing very much because evidence informed is, is yes, looking at what the research says, but then also listening to what the client wants, looking at expectation, understanding contextual effects and all these other wonderful things as well. So you don't just go by what the research says. And then well, you also even, have to understand so, a lot of the papers are poor. Yeah, papers even, are just, the, even the re is going, what is the research? Someone going, oh, this is the best breathing technique to do. And you go, hold on a minute, based on what? This research paper that compared three breathing exercises. 
Yeah. Well, it's only the it's best of those three. World. Like, it's ridiculous that these... Uh, but we don't go... Yeah, we're, we've got... Let's go into more other stuff of just, like, the amount of information that's there and goes through your brain and stuff, but we're not willing to... Um, oh, there's not many, like... And I'm, I'm no different, I'm the same. I'm, like, I'm preparing for a talk for the... Um, UK Strength and Conditioning Association conf- annual conference, and it's like I'm making sure that I do what I say don't do, and in, in that I'm like going and every, going and looking at all the original papers of all these things just mm-hmm. to make sure there isn't something I'm just like ass- making an assumption of, or, or just taking a jump between one to the other because I've not actually looked at the the source of the information. Um, Definitely, very easy to do. So Penny, yes, Sorry. this is what I was going on to. So go to um, the website. Progresswit.com. That's it, yeah. And uh, you'll see on there, there's links to everything. It's a wonderful website. You could easily, Penny, you in particular, could spend happily two hours there. And there is links there to the free foundation. It's, a, it's quite a few free things, I think. Uh, there's you yeah, a free foundations course, and there's uh, one for stress and anxiety management that... Um, I think I was originally going to, that was supposed to be a paid course, but um, when you've worked with people and the effect that it can have, and it's some very simple stuff can have a massive effect on stress and anxiety. I was like, that needs to also be free. Um, no, <laughs> you can finally get some paid stuff at some point if you want to, but you, you can, don't need to, yeah. don't worry. <laughs> no, it's really nice as well, because you can see it comes from a great place where you thought everyone needs to know this. I need yeah. to get out there. And also what, the other thing I loved, you said from your course as well was, and it's a really important point, not everyone is going to need the paid-for stuff. You can yeah. help loads of people, particular patients or clients, with just the basic stuff, just the little yeah. kind of visualisation stuff. So definitely people go and have a look and take, um, people always asking on this show, what's the best CPD? I want to spend some money on CPD. It's like, well, well, put your money back in your pocket. There's loads of great quality stuff from people like David. Sorry, Jacko, David, make you sound Sorry. like I'm telling you off here. <laughs> so, yeah. Great stuff from Jacko, which is free, and it really will give you some hands-on stuff you can do with your clients while they're in that receptive state uh, to work on breathing. And then if you find somebody who you feel actually just needs um, some more assistance, it's outside of my scope of practice now, then we'll put some links and things you can get them to do and go people you can go and see um, outside of that. So, yeah, that's the website. I just want to make sure because it's such a massive topic and we can't do it justice just in an hour. Um, yeah, so go to um, the website and uh, make sure you take advantage of what's on there. So that's www.probreathwork.com, which leads me on to something else I want to talk to you about, uh, Jack, if that's all right, because I'm sure a lot of you out there, people listening to podcasts as well, are aware of the kind of Wim Hof breathing side of stuff, okay? Um, and we are talking a bit off air about that. The guys managed to capture a massive audience. We've got people jumping into ice buckets across the country and, and doing hyperventilation. And we've got like, people like Joe Rogan with millions and billions of followers doing it. What are some of the similarities and differences between what that's about and what you're about? Um, so I was trained with Patrick McEwen from the Oxygen Advantage. Um, so some people have read uh, his book. Uh, it was a whole training program system on the master instructors. Uh, so I teach the certification um, and I'm one of the mentors. We've got over 4,000 um, instructors certified with the Vantage worldwide now. Um, and it's a question that often comes up. I think one of the first starting points is to say that, like, the, the breathing part of the Wim Hof method is just one third of it. There's breathing, there's the ice, and there's the mindset. Um, and, then, and then the other bit is, like, 
the breathing part is just a tool to try and make some physiological changes to the endocrine system, the immune system um, as an upregulator. And it's been studied and it clearly works. And it's been shown to work and that's no one's arguing that. Um, the uh, differences come in that it's not teaching you anything about functional breathing, about the biomechanics of breathing. It's not doing necessarily anything for our, our CO2 tolerance or our bodies relate chemosensitivity to, to carbon dioxide. Um, and during the hyperventilation part of it, your some downsides that could be you can um, if you've got poor breathing mechanics and then you hyperventilate, you go hard at it. You're exasperating some bad movement patterns and no different. I'm I've got an SNC background, so a strength conditioning background. I look at the, the biomechanics, the mechanical part of breathing. It's just it's a movement, it's a movement pattern, and look at it like no other. If you overload a bad squat pattern, someone's going to get bad knees or whatever. Um, so no different. Um, and uh, as you're doing that hyperventilation, you're offloading CO2 and each round of hyperventilation that you do has a compounding effect. And you can leave that session um, with a lower baseline CO2 within the body than you started with, which isn't going to be good for um, good for your body's tolerance and stuff. The, um, yeah, and there's some misconfusion around like, um, acidity, alkalinity. Um, that is, to, we don't need to go into that for this. But there's there's some bits that's just not that people are misunderstanding things. Um, your body wants to keep pH of the blood between seven point three five and seven point four five. Um, if you I had to put that, out, um, no, I won't go into that. Um, <laughs> it's one of those ones, it? You're so ready to do this. You'd be like, um, shall we? Have we talked about me. that really exciting <laughs> thing? No, no, we'll save that till next week. <laughs> one of the things these people will be familiar with i say these people but anybody who's kind of studied what we kind of call level three anatomy like a lot of the sports massage therapists will have done their kind of eight or nine body systems and they'll be familiar with that kind of picture of the medullary respiratory center and they'll be familiar with how this kind of peripheral and centro um chemoreceptors and that yeah but and and how it's actually measuring co2 acidity but talk us through that again because it'll be some ground people remember but i don't think people made the connection there's something you said earlier on we all think that oxygen is what we depend on to live and co2 is the enemy we just need to get rid of it and it's all breathing is all about getting that oxygen in and you kind of touched on it earlier on and that's only part of the story and i love the way you said actually a lot of what we breathe in just goes out again yeah but it's the co2 which defines us to continue breathing and also our performance so yeah yeah um so and and probably nicely so in terms of what we're trying to teach with the oxygen advantages we're trying to improve the mechanics of your breathing we're trying to improve your chemosensitivity we're trying to improve the way that you breathe when you're asleep when you're awake when you're doing sports when you're trying to recover sports we're trying to work on your breathing the whole shebang um and that isn't a and that's only answering the question that people ask about the comparison with the Wim Hof method. But it's an unfair comparison. The Wim Hof method uses breathing as a tool to upregulate effects. We can sort of describe it as simply as that. That's what it's doing. Um, whereas with the oxygen we're teaching people how to breathe. We'll also use the breath as a tool to more probably likely downregulate for recovery because most people don't need the upregulation, but we can upregulate as well. Some of the breath holding you do is upregulating. It's good for warm up before exercise, etc. But it's a whole one hundred percent concerned about breathing. I think that's the the, the biggest difference. Um, 
uh, yeah, so the um, the brainstem, like three parts to the brainstem, the midbrain, pons, medulla. The respiratory centers, as we know at the moment, but we used to think the world was flat, are in the medulla in the pons. Um, there's probably some in the, uh, prob the, the breathing can definitely influence the midbrain. Um, but whether so there is some but the chemoreceptors, the receptors that are sensitive to chemical changes within the body, the central chemoreceptors are there. Um, they're primarily uh, or preliminary uh, uh, responsive or most responsive to changes in carbon dioxide and pH of the blood. And those two things are basically the same thing, really, because 65% um, of carbon dioxide gets converted to carbonic acid to be transported to the blood to get to your lungs to, to breathe out. So it makes the blood, you don't have to be a scientist to know carbonic acid is acidic. It makes the blood more acidic. That obviously reduces, the pH goes down, and um, your brain notices that, those central chemoreceptors, and they will trigger us to breathe. The, uh, the receptors in the pons and the medulla, the pons tends to be more related to that size of breath, and the medulla to do with the, the rate of breathing, the rhythm of breathing, so the speed of breathing. And it will dictate the size and speed to ensure that you get rid of the appropriate amount of CO2 to get pH to stay in that nice balance there where it wants it to, to be around 7.345 to 7.45, something like that. Um, the levels of oxygen aren't really changing that much. You've got 25 trillion red blood cells, 75% of the oxygen you breathe in in one breath, you breathe back out. So if those central chemoreceptors were monitoring levels of oxygen changing to um, dictate the size and speed of your breathing, then the pH of your blood would go beyond what is comfortable or safe for the body because the oxygen in the blood isn't affecting the pH of the blood, whereas the carbon dioxide is. Um, hopefully that makes sense. There are peripheral chemoreceptors around the jaw, uh, around the jawline, around the, uh, the aortic bodies, around the, the heart that are also sensitive to pH and, and uh, CO2, but also to oxygen. But only when, so the sort of science tells us, only when the oxygen levels become hypoxic, become less than 90% or 91%. Then they, then they start, to, and you only get to that point if you've either got some sort of like respiratory problem or you're purposely holding your breath to create an adaptation. That just doesn't, normoxia, normal levels of oxygen, that's a word that always makes me laugh. You go, normal, when I'm teaching this, I go, normal levels of oxygen, it's normoxia. It sounds like moron or not, but anyway, normoxia, like this someone just took two words and just sliced them off and stuck them together. You're like, yeah, that's basically science. Um, so normoxia is 95 to 99%. We don't want our red blood, this is the, um, the, uh, the percentage of red blood cells, so in the blood, saturated with oxygen, carrying that oxygen around to the body. We don't want that to be 100 because that would mean it's all stuck in the blood, not getting into your tissues. Um, the, the blood oxygen saturation is like one of the easiest ways for us to measure what those levels are. Um, and so 95 to 99, it stays within those ranges unless you start holding your breath considerably or you've got some sort of uh, respiratory problem or condition. Um, so it wouldn't be reliable for the brain to use oxygen as the thing that dictates our breathing. Now that, for me, and for a lot of people, when I hear it for the first time, and I heard it the first time, I was like, what? Let's just read that bit again in the book. Like, what? Like, I thought breathing was about oxygen. Not, and it is about oxygen, clearly. And how you breathe, the mechanics of how you breathe, the speed of how you breathe, dictates how easily that oxygen is uptaken within the blood and, and, um, and distributed around the body. but the carbon dioxide 
is the primary stimulus to breathe. It's the thing that those central chemoreceptors are most sensitive to changes in. It's the main thing we need to work on with people that's missed by a lot of people giving out advice about breathing is that what we've got like the biochemistry side of it, like our sensitivity to carbon dioxide or CO2 tolerance. Um, I've already said about how it plays a massive role on vagal tone. It plays a role on um, circulation, vasodilation, oxygen delivery to tissues being the catalyst that allows oxygen to be released. Um, other things, um, the baroreceptors, so your blood pressure, is uh, better calibrated is that the right word when you have a good tolerance of carbon dioxide um so we work with people some clients i work you know my best the most amount of work i do is with like professional rugby players but i'll work with with all sorts of people um and some have been literally like the doctor said you need to take these blood pressure tablets and they've gone well i don't want to take the tablets yet let me try and do this a bit more naturally and we do a few sessions on Zoom and a few weeks later, his blood pressure is back to normal. And it's like, it's as simple as that for some people. Now, I'm also well aware that like breathing isn't the cure all for all things. But I've had an experience of and I have an appreciation that it is part of that autonomic system. It is always happening and it has the ability to affect absolutely everything we do and even by the way the brain uh, functions um like physiologically you could be more susceptible to feelings of anxiety when you're more sensitive to carbon dioxide but again that's like a thing that's been proven so it affects literally all of our physiology and even our our, our mentality um so it's definitely somewhere to to, to start so all this basically is about improving our tolerance to co2 because the more you can tolerate that then the more efficient you are at breathing yeah. because you're not having to suddenly suck you don't feel you your urge to yeah. breathe will be much smaller so you don't have a desire to take a big breath and you don't have a desire to breathe particularly fast it's calmer for the nervous system yeah so i'm going to give you a difficult question now because because i think this is what because 10 years ago because I, I looked it up 10 years ago i wrote a piece for runners connect and basically it was it came out at the same time as a book which was going into the rhythm of breathing and how you should have start on different legs. It was it was more of a reaction to that. I can't walk running on air or something it was right. coming. But but I also kind of covered this idea of do you use the mouth or the nose or do you kind of co-breathe? And I kind of I mean it was ten years ago, so I was basically you know laying out the idea that the mouth is much bigger. So if basically we're trying to get as much oxygen as possible and then expel as much CO2 as possible, then it makes sense the mouse got to be involved. And I kind of came to the conclusion then that it would be different for runners and some will be better with a nose because the nose is advantages. But for me it was kind of like co-breathing, it's kind of a logical thing. So how does nasal breathing link with if we understand now it's about sensitivity to CO2, what's the link there between nasal and CO2 sensitivity? Um do you mean in relation to running? In relation to, I mean, if, this, if, if, if the methodology is about improving our sensitivity to CO2 and therefore being able to breathe more uh, efficiently, yeah. then how is that connected to sealing that and just- Oh, so um, uh, probably this, the, uh, I thought you were gonna ask me- Oh, is that too much of a jump? No, no, it's not at all, that? it's an easy question. Yeah. I thought you were gonna ask me a hard question. I thought oh, you were gonna ask me a question. No, that's it. Really interesting. Because for me, it's still like big mouth, you got to use your mouth. Yeah, well, I thought you were going to ask. Now I understand. Me. Hold on, it's about CO two. Then why? About, how? How's the nose? Yeah, there, I thought it was going to be. There is a. There is some stuff around like um, when you talk about like pacing, like 
predominantly landing on the same leg on your exhalation oh, yeah. all the time and how you lose intradominal pressure. From... Anyway, um, I thought you were going to ask about but that. Is that something you're into then? Uh, I've not looked loads something... into that, but it makes sense in that, like, um, there have been some oh, really people, gosh. yeah, where they've, they've been injuring the same side and they've actually linked it into, like, their uh, their breathing pattern. He's running on air. It's a 2013 book by the coach, but I kind of dismissed it because the paper which he based it on, even the guys who wrote it, which is Bramble and Carrier, they kind of later on said, we were just theorising. It doesn't make much sense. Yeah. But it was too late then. He'd made the book and got the T-shirt. <laughs> yeah. But I'm going to have to go back and edit so much of what I did 10 years ago. But anyway, yeah, the, no, let's not go down so that. The, so the nasal breathing. breathing yeah. uh, but yeah. it, it's, it, there's, a, there's a bit of a sense of rational bit that will make sense to people within it that I can add in. But the nasal breathing, 50% more resistance than the mouth. So that was... Resistance as in... Um, as in resistance, as in those two things are way smaller than that big hole. Oh, right. Yeah? So it resistance helps. to the airflow, which helps to slow mm. down the airflow. Now, if it slows the down airflow so much that you can't get rid of that CO2 that you're accumulating when you're running at a level that you're happy with, you're going to feel out of breath. But anytime you're feeling out of breath, we can put a pulse oximeter on you and it is not because you have ran out of oxygen. And I know in your brain, when you're running up that hill, nice. and you're trying to suck that oxygen yeah. in, and it's like, I need to take these big breaths. The reason you're finding those bigger breaths satisfying is not the inhale. It's because on the exhale, you get rid of the CO2 that you're not being able to deal with. So you've got two options. One is get rid of that stuff. But what tends to happen for a lot of people, they'll use the mouth and they'll get rid of it too quickly. And then you're on the borderline of it, then you're getting rid of too much, and then you're going to get some of that vasoconstriction and, and oxygen staying more tightly bound to CO2. So that's not going to feel very good. Um, your other, like your other option is trying, you know, keep in a good place. But you've got a train. Part of training can be resisting that urge to take those bigger breaths and just try to keep the breath calm, which the nose will dictate can dictate your pace about this. But effectively. Just gently, force, force is probably too strong a word, but you're going to keep a bit of that CO2 inside, keep that urge to breathe, psychologically knowing that that is CO2 building up within your body, and you can use that time in a training run to actually help improve your tolerance of it. That will build up your capacity to control your breath, um, your your CO2 tolerance is related to your ability to tolerate lactate because it's the uh, the same um, pH regulation that your system that you're working on. It can help with lactate clearance as well. So you're building up your body's ability to deal with like some potentially higher levels of, of exercise. Does that make sense? It does. That's brilliant. Why am I no, no. rushing the questions now? bit of this because we're really getting the crux of things now i'm trying to play devil's yeah. advocate because i want people to start thinking now what they're going to do when the runners for example start saying obviously this sounds okay when you're working at a lower level and a lot of critics will say yes it's fine like when i'm listening to you i'm just breathing through my nose in and out and it's very relaxing yeah. and, and it's great but if i'm like i went out today and had a little run and i had you in my head and i was thinking let's try it and what happened to me was the same thing as what happened to you when you said you tried it the first time. I got like about 10 strides in and that was it. I was just like, oh my God, I got no air. Yeah. But it, it is a gradual process where you're building up yeah. this tolerance. But my question now is why have we 
why don't we naturally do that through evolution? Why, yeah. why doesn't it come no. naturally if that's a more efficient system? Um, great question. I'm also I'm just going to say some add something in. The mistake we often make a lot of the time is this conversation then goes down between nose or mouth, and we forget mm. about everything else down there, and actually everything mm. else back there in terms of your airway, your tongue posture, those that your structural airway, you know, by your your genetics and and how your face is developed as you've grown up, and there's a number of things that go into that. All those are going to affect your ability to use your nose. Um, even just one very simple thing that people get wrong is we think about breathing up the nose, and when I breathe up my nose. I have this like upper chest vertical pattern with my mechanics of my breathing, which mm-hmm. isn't isn't as, as as helpful as it could be, or isn't as efficient as it as it could be. Your airway goes back into your face. I've got this like demonstration where I like put a cotton bud in the in the hole basically where you breathe. Like air doesn't go up to your brain; it goes in. Like the the, the nasal cavity goes backwards along basically the top of your mouth, so the bottom of your nose is like the top of your mouth. It goes back there and it goes down. And if you just think about breathing into your face rather than up your nose, for a lot of the time people go, oh, wow, like thinking about breathing into my face, I'm now rather than lifting up here, I'm feeling like this this stuff expanding out. That's a really good So tip. my point yeah. on that is that, yes, when we went to nasal breathing for the first time for our running and it felt horrendous, chances are our mechanics were terrible, our, our tongue position would have been terrible, uh, our airway was probably compromised and psychologically we were still thinking we didn't know what that sensation of air hunger was we thought it was related to um to oxygen our nose was probably really blocked as well because we haven't been using it um so we've got a load of snot coming out of there and it's just not a good experience and then we're but we're getting everything else wrong in terms of our mechanics in terms of our airway in terms of our tool position which affects it and it's not just about nose or mouth um, it's about breathing as a whole and the nose as part of that. Now, at higher intensities, and why didn't we, uh, why do we, um, you know, breathing is so important. It's got an auto setting. It's also got all these other um, elements as like uh, get out of jail free cards. You know, you don't have to use your diaphragm, you can lift your ribcage up. You've got these accessory breathing muscles. You've got another hole in your mouth sorry, a hole in your face that you can use to do other stuff. Your primary job for your mouth is talking and eating. Um, it doesn't provide a um, any of the things that the nose does in terms of like respiratory health and breathing and quality of breathing, but it's there as a bigger vessel if we need to. So you can have a problem, uh, a stressful situation, or like a level of where CO2 becomes so high that we have we get to trigger a panic attack, and that's your body's like um, uh, protective system, override system in the brain that like makes you breathe out quick to get rid of CO2 that could be to you know to dangerous levels. Now, when I'm exercising at a, um, a higher intensity. There's a few things, uh, some, is my, some is my sort of, let's say, uh, calculated, I was going to say opinion, but I wanted to be a bit, sound a bit better than opinion. But basically, there is, um, there's a study done last year that showed there was over 2,000 um, people screened of, a, of an athletic population, whatever that means, uh, but people involved in sports and exercise. And 91% of them, in terms of the mechanics of how they breathe, we're defined as being dysfunctional breathers. And that's people that are doing exercise sport and like doing, do you, you think would be fitter and therefore like be able to breathe better? 
But the problem we have is no one teaches us how to breathe and we get our lives these days are so disconnected from the natural world. We're asking a question like, why don't we naturally breathe well? Well, we don't live naturally. You're not designed to look at a computer screen. You're not designed to sit down in a desk all day that's going to compromise our posture and things. We don't, um, we spend way too much time stressed, which is linked into changing, you know, literally the stress is going to influence our nervous system, which is going to influence the way that we breathe. That's a natural process, but we spent time disconnected from the natural world. And there's other things that really compromise our airway in terms of like the facial structure, um, whether we're breastfeeding as children, the type of food that we're eating as children, whether the jaw um, uh, is developing, that all affects your airway and all affects how easy it is to breathe for your nose. And all those things that we're doing that are unnatural are making us poor at naturally breathing well. And naturally, I've never explained it like that before. It sounds bloody obvious now to me as Thank to you. why we're not good at doing that natural thing. Well, we don't do anything bloody natural anymore. It's it's it's, it's a good you, answer. I like that. Okay, I it's tricky though because it's a good answer. You write it down. Yeah, it's a good answer. But go on, hit me with but, something else. I'm either going to say but or button. In this case, it's but. High intensity exercise. I've got some international rugby players I'm working with. They are going to use their mouth, and I'm going to tell them to use their mouth. Well, I'm going to tell them it's important. Like, what's the worst type of breathing? And for a sports person, what looks like the worst type of breathing? <laughs> yeah, mouth that video. That's so true. teaching them to ensure when you use your mouth, use it well. When you use your mouth, you don't let everything else go to, to cock. You mechanically breathe well. You understand your respiratory. You understand those basics, a bit like Becky was talking about. We understand those basic foundations of, of what is true and what makes good breathing. And we take them and we use them. But yeah, if you're if you're playing a sport like rugby and you're not mouth breathing, you're not pushing yourself hard enough, is probably where I would. Say. So I was trying mm. to answer your question. The only thing I worry about is if, if I was talking to, for example, a barefoot runner enthusiast. Now, I'm not going to ask you whether you run with the Indians in Mexico. And I'm Vivo barefoot, baby. I, well, see, this is the thing, because like when there's research done showing that in a marathon, that by the time you get to like past halfway, half percent of people are forefoot running and 99 percent are running with the heels, then that to me, I take it as like, well, either all of these people are running wrong or the people who say you should be four foot running for a perfect strike because that's what ancestors did is, is, is incorrect. But when I hear that research paper says, oh, we did you know, a test on all these athletes, elite athletes, and 92% of them are breathing wrong. My initial reaction is, well, obviously then you can't say that 92% are doing wrong. It sounds like, you know, maybe they were just doing what comes naturally, but we're trying yeah. to force something else upon them. But your answer, has now made me. If if I ask you the same, we're talking about, about running. So they're like, I could say that we're all kind of running wrong because we've all learned it through our modern existence. You know, to land our heels. Like, well, that worries me because like, I can't. We, I can't do that. I have to shut down my website. Well, the so like the breathing bit was like you know upper chest thoracic vertical breathing. Like mm. we know that that isn't efficient. So like. You've got the most amount of blood low down within the lungs. You've got the greatest density of alveoli low down within the lungs. You've got the diaphragm, which is your primary breathing muscle, there at the bottom of the ribcage, designed to pull down, flatten out of the ribcage and expand there. And you've got all this good stuff happening there. And you're not going to access mm. that if you're, if you're breathing up here. Um, you can't fill from yeah, the top. It's sense. like a, you can't fill the top and then mm. fill the bottom. 
Um, so when they were breathing wrong, these people, the running fit, what were they commenting on though? When they said they were breathing wrong, it wasn't just they were breathing through their mouths. It was to do uh, that with, was through the, like so that was safe. the mechanics of how they were breathing. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Yeah. Okay. That's... But the running thing again, it's probably like the natural thing. Like, um, people might not believe. Like, it might take a bit of time to see this to sink in. But shoes aren't natural. We don't wear shoes. Like, that's a new thing. We're going to say this in another podcast. But it I'm is, sure. though. Actually, I don't think you have got anything else you really want. Shoes are new. You look at, like, the world, like, the span of mankind. Shoes are brand new. It's tricky, though, isn't it? We haven't got much footage of Caveman. We don't know what they were wearing at the time. Well, they definitely weren't wearing Nike Air. <laughs> I, definitely, I definitely ran up Snowden six times in 24 hours two weeks ago. 6,000 metre climb, 60 yeah. uh, miles. I wasn't barefoot. I was wearing barefoot shoes. A friend of mine yeah. came and did um, uh, a rep with me completely barefoot. And everyone was like, I mean, I was the same going like, wow, this is a bit. Literally, yeah, every single person who went preach. past stopped and was like, what the hell are you doing? He's like, I love running them up <laughs> just with barefoot. And what's the distance as well? Because I remember reading recently the distance you ran just nasal breathing. What did you manage to, didn't you? Oh, but, but all of my running is nasal breathing. When you're running a... Then you reach like a distance, which is quite astronomical. Uh, well, and I, did, people think. I did 216 kilometre uh, three-day ultramarathon last year, running around Anglesey. But was that all nasal? nasal? Yeah, but... Really? You've got to think that it shouldn't be... That shouldn't uh, impress anybody. Because no. how long, how fast are you running? You're running very slow. There's yeah, no benefit to mouth breathing at low intensity exercise. Zero. Mm. Then you knocked a minute off your park run, didn't you? I remember hearing about and that was well, that, nasal breathing as well. Which is, uh, no, which is I'd have gone, I would time. have I would have that's, that's that was the first time I'd done something with my breathing and had this like massive oh. performance increase that I was like, wow. I've read the book and understood the theory. Mm. I've now done it. This stuff really makes a difference. And I wasn't nasal breathing. It wasn't like my, my the pace I was running a park run at, I was running like a 20 minute, 2015 park run, so 20 minutes, 15. I've been trying to break 20 minutes mm. for ages. And my training for park run was zero. I turned up at park run each week. That was it. So I had no right to try to get better because I didn't do any training. I literally, I didn't do any running in, in the week. I just turned up at park run and do my running. Um, and I knocked, yeah, knocked nearly a minute off. I was like 19, so my PB now is like 1920 or something. So from 2015 to 1920 or something like that. And and did you manage to repeat that performance again? It wasn't like a one-off where you're thinking, oh, I just feel great. Yeah, yeah. Work. Well, every time I buy a new pair of shoes, I get a PB, but next week I just go back for it. Yeah, like, oh, that, well, cool. but then I misunderstood the whole nose-mouth thing and was like trying to make everything nose and I never would use my mouth. And that hindered me a little bit at the start because I wasn't, I didn't have, you know, I've got a narrow face, and I've got good airway, and the CO2 tons really low for my brain injury, all of that stuff. But when I did the, the, um, the PB, I'd had six weeks of just understanding what I was doing, and maybe the first kilometer I could nasal breathe, and then it became too hard, or at a certain point it became too hard. I understood a principle of how to breathe with my diaphragm, how to get the rib cage expanding. I ensured I kept breathing low in terms of being deep, and I kept a, a handle on the rate at which I was breathing. So I never got to panting um, because. Mm. That tidal volume, that speed of your breathing, dictating that that volume of air they're breathing, keeping a handle on the speed at which you're breathing makes your breathing more efficient and optimizes your ventilation because you waste less air in dead space. That's dead space is a, an amount of 
or a space within the within the lungs that you can't occupy. And when you breathe at a faster rate, you're wasting more air in dead space. So all I did was I went when I had to go to mouth breathing, I kept breathing, focus on breathing low down, kept taking it bigger and trying to just keep a handle on the speed at which I was doing. So slightly bigger and slightly slower breaths than I would sort of automatically wanted to go to. Um, I I actually crossed the finish line a bit disappointed. Didn't look at what because I didn't think I'd done that well. And when I finally looked at my watch, I was like, "Whoa, what?" Uh, then it was like, "Okay, this is yeah." It was cool. It was cool. Right. Well, there's so much there. Um, it is five eight minutes past nine. I could talk to you for hours. I'm sure you got other things you need to do. <laughs> like, but I'd be difficult. And that's something else we're talking as well, isn't it? There's breathe, yeah, breathe. Yes, yeah, <laughs> like the, the effect. Of there's so much more we could talk about, but. My aim was for our listeners to be hooked in and interested enough to look at, like I say, a lot of the free resources you've got on your website. And then obviously there's courses, there's membership as well for people who get into it. And and there is work to be done. For some people, you can make some changes very quickly. You've made that clear and you might not need the whole shebang. But for whether it's to do with, because we've gone nicely from a head trauma, recovering from that, just into somebody who's just trying to improve their daily living or performance. It's all connected, isn't it? And you've discovered that yourself through your own experience. So there are courses people can do. Um, and also Nikki, Nikki's such a good PA, isn't she? Where she, she's she like, mentioned, um, she's great. Ramping, uh, she mentioned she's, your, she's not my support, so she's your free online. <laughs> she figures she found Alan. Yeah, so Gary, Jacko does a free online introductory live Zoom every now and then where he takes you through it interactively. Highly recommend, thumbs up. He also has a live Zoom breath, breathe breathe every week for members so for, yeah so for members there is a regular yeah so do weekly of, uh, yeah do weekly customers but um like i'm not here to i'm not here to sell anything other than the fact that breathing is important and you can um and you can improve it and the the free foundations course unless you're like looking to like absolutely maximize your like sporting performance and recovery you don't need any of the more complicated courses like you just don't that's me like being the opposite of a salesman you just don't the free foundations course, it's, everything's there that you need to improve your your day-to-day breathing, your understanding of breathing, understanding it enough to be able to teach some very simple things to your clients. Um, the stress and anxiety one is there for people that, 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 that struggle on that side of things. Um, and then I did a, I've done a, um, a two-hour seminar um, on the specifics for the, the brain injuries and concussions and mm-hmm. how to assess your breathing after post-brain injury, what it means, how to work on the breathing and heart rate variability to help with that. And, and that's all free there, um, there as well. So, um, yeah, go, go fill the, uh, yeah, that recent seminar that's still on YouTube. Uh, it? It's, it's on YouTube and sure. the, um, the seminar as well as being on YouTube, it's on the pro breathwork platform. It's on the website with the presentation mm-hmm. and the exercises that you'd need to do from a concussion perspective are also there as little tutorials. So you don't have to watch the whole two hour thing. Um, Pro Breathwork is also an app as well. So much app on, uh, so the web. Yeah. It's of course we've been talking well, about. It's the just app. the, the app I mean, is the, so much information the, the app version of the website is um, amazing. And then we should mention as well because it's Lucy Williamson who brought us together, who was a guest on our show back. Um, what number was it? I did write it down. It feels like it was about eight weeks ago. Oh, let's bring it up anyway. So <laughs> just bring it up. People can't see this. If this is podcast, you can't see this. But there's Rooted Life, another website which you're involved in 
um, but it kind of encapsulates what you've kind of opened up with, like getting back to nature, links with uh, nutrition as well. Tell us a little bit about what that's yeah. about. Um, yeah, no, so uh, Rooted Life is a, um, an organisation that um, originally me and my wife started. Um, we've done some events that Lucy is, is, is part of uh, our team of experts. We've also got um, Dr. Sally Bell, um, who is a, has been a GP for 20 years. Uh, before sort of working more, um, what's the word, like private, working privately rather than working for issues within the NHS. Um, and so there's a number of us that have um, also have combined together to look at like, how do we, how do we live a more natural life? How do we live a more rooted life? Um, connecting with nature, connecting with yourself, connecting with others. Um, I, you know, sort of lead on the, the breathing piece of that that can help us connect very much um, to ourselves. Um, and those three pillars being, um, you know, encapsulating a little bit of everything, connect to yourself, nature and others. And if you, if you dial, when we dial into those three, you actually go, well, we aren't as, as human beings, like we might be disconnected from nature, but we ourselves are actually nature. So rooted life probably actually when you narrow it down, it comes down to, to one, um, one pillar, which is helping us get connected to nature. Um, that's where you got like the 5% that we give of profits to the farmer's footprint, which is about soil health. Um, because it's, that is without that, we haven't got anything. Um, and uh, yeah, that's the, the non-sporty stuff that I sort of get involved with. That's say. It's nice. It all comes together. It's brilliant. And, and uh, yeah, that was episode 154 with Lucy Williamson, Dr. Lucy Williamson, uh, all about gut health and the gut microbiome. Um, and that's available, obviously, in all your podcast apps. Yeah, we're doing a retreat together, actually. In Scotland. There you go. I've got something to sell. We're doing a retreat, uh, Rooted Life, with uh, Lucy up in Scotland in uh, oh. October. There are still places oh. available for that if anyone's interested. We'll make sure that goes on the show notes as well. I'll send you an email. You can yeah, give me a link for that. Put yeah. that down. Right, mate, I don't want to keep you too much longer um it's been fantastic so much information really some things i've got to get my head around and, and <laughs> people munch out live <laughs> i've got to go back and contact one of those connectors it's not changed something for 2013 but yeah um that's that's the beauty of isn't it and, and that's what we're always saying on the show things evolve and if you're still preaching what you taught 10 years ago then yeah. something's going wrong because things we, evolve. so i've said it already like we used to think the world was flat and like apologies if anyone still does think that it's flat um just a few bits. I think we're happy that it's, that it's a, but you know, and that's the same thing of like everything I've said there. I'm happy that like that I might not be right about all things. And actually a lot of mm. very rarely was I saying something that was my opinion. Some stuff is mm. experience having worked with a lot of people, but the other side of it is that it's what other people have already like discovered in, within the, within the science and within the research. Um, but and once again, I mean, kind of few guests on like this now. I mean, it happens quite a lot. People suffer. Uh, we've had guests on who have suffered from eating disorders, and people have suffered from endometriosis, and and all sorts of debilitating systemic diseases and things. And and you've turned your personal suffering and that anguish of 2013 onwards mm -hmm. to right. I'm going to help other people now. I want other people to be better informed if they go for the same thing, maybe for it to be signposted earlier on. So, yeah. uh, you know, we narrow that chances. So I, I thank that's you for it. that as well. Because um, that's yeah. the only powerful yeah. thing when you can do that. Thank you for that, Jacko. That's the, it's the only way. Right. Um, people who joined us live, thank you very much for your questions. Um, 
if you are listening to the podcast, whether it be on One Chat Live podcast or on the Sports Therapy Association podcast, then do please leave us a review. I, I'd nag a bit, but like we get about three and a half thousand downloads and we've only got about, I don't know, 26 reviews. So the message oh, isn't quite that, getting that, through I'm enough, not a mathematician. My mum was a mathematician. I mean? the math it's on the, the math, a small percentage. Come on, people. And I know that at least 60% of you are iPhone users. So that's... It's not Even like if you just do iTunes. five stars and a thumbs up, you exactly. don't have to put much effort into it. On your iPhone, it takes a second. Yeah, you know, literally just does. Do it, please, people. You know, how many times have you reviewed it? Twenty-five. You've reviewed it twenty-five. We've got twenty-six reviews. I've done it. Too obvious. There's only so many ways I can make up a name. <laughs> but um, but yeah, it's really important, people, because it's not money earning thing. It's just that's how Google results work. The more you review something then if anyone puts breathe in bam up will come jacko nearer the top with the great word and that's the same for all of our guests so if you enjoy what we do and you enjoy the great words that our guests put out then show your appreciation just by leaving that review because it's how the algorithm works as simple as that uh, don't just and also it just means more people will, will learn about it and finally one day park run will be everybody keeping it nasal see what i did there i like it not, not everyone will be able to manage their part of nasal, but yeah. No, not yet. That's the dream. <laughs> the dream. I've got a little project, Nasal Running Club, actually, that is, um, I've really? got a logo for. I've just not had time to do anything else with it. You think you're doing it. Like, I do exercise to, to be healthy or be fit or whatever, and it's like, well, then use the correct hole in your face to get the air in and out that is healthy. There you go. Use the correct hole, people. Right, don't press any buttons there, Jack. I'm just gonna say thank you to you in a second, but I'm gonna shut the live lounge down out now. Um, if you're listening, you wanna join us next week, then hopefully, if he's well uh, on his feet, Keith Burnett will be with us, England University's Rugby League Sports Therapist, to talk about what we've talked about tonight, actually. We'll have a nice chat with Keith about that, um, and also talk about his doctorate student in neck injury management rugby players. Um, he's got a book that's coming out as well, which is has been very challenging, but that is coming out soon as well. If you'd like to join us for that, then like I say, just go on to the Sports Therapy Association YouTube channel on Tuesday, back to our normal Tuesdays on August 15th. But until then, um, yeah, thanks again to Jacko, and uh, take care, people. You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, Evidence back into soft tissue therapy.